Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome. This is Babbage, a weekly conversation about technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And on this week's show, could a cluster of mysterious radio signals really be from space aliens? They don't seem to fit into any of the categories we already have for things that produce signals in, in outer space. We're pretty sure they're not pulsars, they're not stars, they're not things we know about already. So the question is, what are they? Yellow fever is flaring up again in Brazil. This is bad news for humans, but as we'll hear, it's devastating for other primates. Well, according to primatologists, yellow fever can wipe out 80 or 90 percent of a population, especially of vulnerable species like the howler monkey. And arachnophobes may not appreciate this, but we have just found out how much the global spider population eats each year. Spoiler alert, a lot. We'll explain why this matters later in the show. But first, man has long gazed up into the heavens, wondering what else might be out there. And humans have been listening too, in the hopes that some other form of life may either intentionally or unwittingly make contact with us. So could that now have happened? Some mysterious radio signals picked up at an observatory in Australia have been creating a stir among the scientific community. Here to tell us what they might be is science correspondent Tim Cross. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. What are the signals, and when did we pick them up? So the signals are called fast radio bursts in a sort of explosion of creativity from science right there. And that pretty much describes exactly what they are. They're very, very brief, but very, very powerful flashes in the radio spectrum. So they're like flashes of visible light, except they're flashes made of radio waves. And the first one was detected in 2001, as you say, by the telescope in Australia. No one spotted it at the time. And it was only when a grad student was going back through some historical data that he found this thing and said, hey, this looks really weird. What's this? Since then, we've seen 16 more. So there have been 17 of these things. And nobody really knows what causes them. They don't seem to fit into any of the categories we already have for things that produce signals in in outer space. We're pretty sure they're not pulsars, they're not stars, they're not things we know about already. So the question is, what are they? And so if it doesn't fit into things that we already know go bump in the night... What are some of the theories of what this is? There are various ones. It might be, for instance, a particularly exotic kind of black hole that forms in a sort of novel way. Another is they might be signals from these things called magnetars, which are neutron stars with extremely powerful magnetic fields. This is all kind of hypothetical, but what's put them in the news recently is a paper from two researchers, one at Harvard and one at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, which are not quite the same thing. And their idea is, hey, maybe these are alien spaceships. Okay, so I love it. On what basis do they believe that there is a suitable hypothesis for these to be alien spaceships? Well, so the basic idea is is actually it's an interesting one because when people talk about aliens, it tends to be with a bit of a snigger. And that's sort of fair enough. We've never seen any all our sort of cultural ideas of what aliens look like are people in bad suits with a bit of latex molding on their foreheads, speaking funny languages on Star Trek or whatever. 
But we know now from all the data gathered by telescopes like Kepler that planets are common. We know that planets in the habitable zone are pretty common. We are less sure about the chemistry, but we think, you know, there's no reason to assume that life is particularly tricky or maybe sort of massively unusual. So it's not, it's not a silly position to think that there's life elsewhere in the universe. And if you think there's life elsewhere in the universe, maybe there's intelligent life. And if you think there's intelligent life, maybe you might see some signs of it. Okay, so I understand that there could be space aliens. If they are there, what could they be saying to us? Well, the idea is, in this paper at least, that they aren't really saying anything. But what we're seeing is the signatures of their spaceships, or at least the signatures of the technologies they use to push their spaceships around. So their idea is, if you were an advanced alien civilization and you wanted to fly rockets between planets or between galaxies or whatever, there's a fundamental problem with rockets, which is that rockets have to carry all their fuel internally. And the fuel you carry internally has mass, which means to move it along, you need a bit of extra fuel. And that extra fuel has mass, so you need more fuel, so you have more mass. And this quickly runs away from you. And it's the reason why, you know, our rockets that we build are something like 90% propellant and 10% payload, if that. So one way to get around this is to separate the rocket from the engine. One technology for that is something called a light sail. So you build a great big sail in space, and then on a planet you have some kind of emitter. So you have like a laser emitter or a radio emitter or whatever. And you shine huge amounts of electromagnetic energy, so light or radio waves or microwaves or whatever, at this sail. And because electromagnetic radiation has a small amount of momentum, if you shine enough of it, you can push the sail along. And this is an idea that you know, human engineers have been toying with for a while. And in fact, Yuri Milner, who's a Russian billionaire with a sort of long-standing interest in science, he's trying to put together something like this to send a probe to Alpha Centauri. So the idea is not crazy on its face. And what they think is we might be seeing alien versions of something similar on a much, much larger scale. And as they shoot these radio waves at the alien rockets, just occasionally the beam washes over the Earth and we see a great big sort of spike in the sky just for a fraction of a second. And that's what an FRB is. Okay. Now, the distances in the universe are so vast that when an event happens and when we detect it, it can be many, many years apart. And indeed, that's what's happened with this radio signal. First, tell us about the radio signal, but then answer this. When will their spaceships arrive? Well, so, so you're right. And one of the things we think we know about the FRBs is that wherever they're coming from, it's not inside the galaxy, which means they must be incredibly powerful. In the paper, they actually work backwards and say, well, OK, suppose I wanted to build one of these things, and suppose I wanted to use solar power, and suppose I wanted to harness all the solar power falling on a planet to power one of these things, how big a planet would I need? And it turns out you need a planet that's about twice the size of Earth, if you assume it's in the habitable zone of the sun. And we know there are lots of planets like that out there. So it will be a heck of a feat of engineering, but nothing in the laws of physics seems to prevent it. They then tried to work out whether, you know, such a thing would be feasible. You know, you're dealing with this incredible amount of energy. Could you actually build something that would do this? Well, if you run the numbers, it turns out you could keep it cool using nothing more exotic than water. And we know water is really common through the universe. And there are various other sort of intriguing hints to do with, you know, the frequencies these things are on and, and how narrow versus how broad they are in, in frequency terms. That hint that they're compatible with the idea that this is what we're seeing, right? So it, it could be other things, but it maybe could be this. You would get enough power out of one of these things to accelerate a pretty big spaceship, so something on the order of a million tons, fairly rapidly towards speeds up pretty close to the speed of light. 
So to answer your second question, if these things are coming from outside the galaxy and if they're going at the speed of light and if one of them is on the way towards us, then we wouldn't expect it for a while because even at the speed of light, it's going to take you a long, long time, millions of years, more than that, to cross the distances between the galaxies. So in other words, we have time to prepare for our first interaction. Yeah. And it's interesting, if you look through the history of astronomy, you know, this isn't the first time we've wondered if we might be seeing aliens. Pulsars, for instance, the first pulsar was called LGM-1 internally when it was first discovered, which stood for little green men, because you had this thing, what seemed like a radio beacon in the sky, very, very regular, pulsing out radio waves. And people thought, well, maybe, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's some kind of you know, navigation beacon. We had the famous example decades before that of the supposed canals on Mars and all the rest. And every time these things have turned out to be something natural. So probably this will be something natural as well. But if you take seriously what we think we're starting to learn about what the universe looks like, then maybe aliens shouldn't be the top of your list. But I think, you know, it's, it, it's intellectually honest to not rule them out either. Tim, what do you think? There have been so many, you know, natural explanations before when we've seen things like this, I think probably it's not aliens, but there's just like a a 1% or a half percent chance that maybe it is, and I think we should keep our minds open to that, even if we're fairly sure it's going to turn out to be not aliens. Great. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. Are there any listeners out there in the universe who have any theories about what these signals might be? Perhaps astrophysicists among our listeners. Is Earth ready to make the first contact with an alien species? Join in the conversation by emailing us at radio at economist.com or tweeting us at Economist Radio or on our Facebook page. Next, yellow fever is a potentially fatal mosquito-borne viral infection. It's often thought of being just a human affective disease, but other primates can catch it too. And as a new outbreak in Brazil suggests, it can be catastrophic for them. Joining us on the line from Brazil to tell us more about the situation is our Sao Paulo bureau chief, Jan Petrowski. Hello, Jan. Hi, Ken. Jan, we don't hear much about yellow fever outbreaks anymore, especially in humans. Is it a big problem these days? Occasionally, you will get a big outbreak in in Africa, unfortunately, where health uh, systems are somewhat less developed. In Brazil, we haven't had a big outbreak. Uh, we really haven't had a what is called an urban yellow fever outbreak since 1942. Uh, scientists distinguish two types of yellow fever transmission mechanisms. One is, is urban and is transmitted by the Aedes aegypti mosquito, which is infamous for carrying things like dengue, but also more recently Zika. And that is uh, transmitted directly between people by that mosquito, which was incidentally brought to Latin America with that other scourge of slavery. The second transmission mechanism, which was identified in Brazil in the 1930s, is called the wild cycle, and and that involves other native Latin American mosquitoes. Uh, But they're forest dwellers, and they transmit the virus between non-human primates, so between monkeys, uh, in the Brazilian jungle. Sometimes, however, man will intrude into that cycle. So how bad is the outbreak now? Among humans, it's worse than it has been pretty much ever for for the wild cycle. Something on the order of 400 confirmed cases since December, about a third of them fatal. How about for other primates? How about for monkeys? How bad will it be for them? Well, according to primatologists, yellow fever can wipe out 80 or 90 percent of a population, especially of vulnerable species like the howler monkey. 
Obviously, every, every human death is, is a huge tragedy, but the current outbreak is, it's hard to call it an epidemic. It is serious. Health authorities are uh, taking serious note. They're dispensing more vaccines. We've had a vaccine since the 1930s. Uh, monkeys, uh, however, do not get the vaccine. With yellow fever, you would have to catch monkeys and inoculate them with, with injections, which is basically practically undoable. And therefore, once the virus start spreading in an area where the monkeys have not, for instance, had previous contact with it and therefore have not had a chance to develop natural immunity, it can spread like wildfire. And that is, in fact, what seems to be happening in parts of Espiritu Santo, which is a small state on the uh, north of Rio de Janeiro, and Minas Gerais, which is a, a much bigger state inland. We know that in Espiritu Santo alone, 900 monkey corpses have been collected, uh, but those are only the ones that have actually been found. Farmers are actually reporting that, whereas usually they would, almost every afternoon, they would hear howler monkeys make their very distinct calls. The forest has, has gone silent, suggesting that really the disease is, is wiping out entire populations. So how are the authorities reacting to this? So if you reduce the number of people who are susceptible to the disease, you are in fact sort of lowering the chances that these people will then carry the disease somewhere where there are more vulnerable monkey populations. The authorities are reacting to the human problem by dispensing more vaccines. They can and are doing much less when it comes to the monkey population, uh, simply because it's, it's, it's really very, very difficult. And all that the authorities can do is spur on researchers and and in fact, Brazilian boffins are hard at work trying to understand exactly what is happening, how the virus is affecting certain monkey populations, how the mosquitoes that carry it are behaving, and so on and so forth. And that is pretty much all they can do at this stage. Jan, thank you very much. Thank you. In last week's episode, we discussed the coming revolution in quantum computing, and discussions on the topic popped up all over social media on our website. One commenter on our website was excited about the prospects of the quantum revolution. The person wrote, quote, When I was 16 in 1946, I told a friend that I wished to be born 50 years later, and now I see why, unquote. And it is true, there's a lot of incredible things happening, but it's still a lot of fun to watch it as we get older. Don't forget you can tweet us at Economist Radio or get in touch via our Facebook page. Finally, Arachnophobia is one of humanity's oldest fears, and I'm sure there's many of you who believe it's possibly one of the worst. Indeed, it is the fear of spiders. So perhaps it may help to shed a little positive light on these scuttling predators. Spiders are voracious eaters, and they help to maintain balance in various ecosystems. A paper published this week has put numbers into the equation, so now we know just how much spiders eat. Joining me now to tell us more about this is our technology correspondent, Hal Hodson. Hello, Hal. Hi, Aiken. Hal, hit us with the figure. How much do spiders eat exactly? Between 400 and 800 million tons of other animals every year. Does that include children or my wife? I mean, it could, but I don't think that's ever happened. Okay, good. That's nice to know. So why do I care about that number? Because it's an illustration of spiders' importance in the sort of global ecosystem. This number is roughly equivalent to the amount of animals that humans eat and also that whales eat. And so 
even though we tend to think of spiders as scary and icky and sort of not really around very much, they're actually performing a huge, huge important function on the planet. And what exactly is that function other than eating? Keeping herbivores in check. If I flicked my fingers and all the spiders disappeared, we would fairly rapidly be overrun with flies and fleas and other insects that they eat. And our crops would too, importantly. Why wouldn't the ecosystem find a way to keep it in check through another mechanism? It, it eventually would, but in the intervening time, there would be lots of flies. Okay, that would be a very bad thing. So this is a sort of in praise of spiders moment. We should be glad for our friendly spider. It is that, and the paper is quite honest that it is trying to present evidence that you know, backs up spiders' magnificence. The one problem I have with this is that the figure is so large, it doesn't really tell me about the spider that I see every evening after I finish my dinner looking up in the ceiling that always comes out to look at me as if I'm now dinner. So that little spider up there, how much flies and mosquitoes does he or she eat? I'm trying to calculate this now. There's 25 million tons of spiders and roughly 400 million tons of food, so... Uh, so that's a ratio of 1 in 16 spiders to animals they eat. So for every spider you see up in your rafters, Ken, they are eating 16 times their weight. So that's a pretty good deal. So 16 times their weight in their lifetime? Every year. How much do I eat every year? Do I eat 16 times weight? I'm, I eat 16 times their weight in a single setting. I don't know the answer to that. I don't have the numbers. Okay. Well, I think that's the, there's more research to be done yeah. indeed on this issue. <laughs> more vital research in this area, as ever. Hal, thank you very much for joining us. No problem, Ken. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Babbage. If you have, please take a moment to rate it on your favorite podcast app or on iTunes. And if you didn't enjoy it, don't rate it. That's a joke. If you have any thoughts on this week's show, please email us at radio at economist.com. If you like the podcast, consider subscribing to The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.